Welcome to My Two Cents with Keith Beggs from Steadfast Wealth Strategies. In this podcast, we show high-level executives and business owners why comprehensive financial planning and executive bonus structures don't have to be too good to be true. Keith draws on his experience in realistic financial planning, and expert guests share his two cents about academically-based financial planning that you have to hear to believe. Now, on to the show. In episode 19 of My Two Cents, host Keith Beggs tackled several key myths of investing. This time around, he will talk about some truths. I'm Patrice Sikora. Keith, previously you reviewed common myths including stock picking, market timing, track record investing, and the cost of investing. So what do you have in the way of truths for this episode? Hey, Patrice. Thanks for that introduction. So we believe that there are three academic theories that dispel the myths that we talked about last time and that you just mentioned. And so these three academic theories make up what we call the Madsen method. Okay. And this is an investment approach based on accepted, that's a key word there, Mm -hmm. accepted financial theories and academic research from the last 50 years. All right. These concepts form a solid discipline and diversified investment strategy, which seeks to, seeks, excuse me, to rationalize investment behavior. Okay. So mm-hmm. what we're doing is we're saying instead of stock picking, market timing, track record investing, let's use solid, disciplined academic theories to build a portfolio to then help us get to where we're trying to go. Well, I do have to say, you mentioned these three components to me just before we started recording, and they certainly do have academic sounding titles. Yes. So what are the three components, right? Well, we have efficient market hypothesis. We have modern portfolio theory. And then we have the three-factor model. And uh, these things probably sound complicated, right? uh, As you just mentioned, but don't be scared (laughs) off. We're going to break each of these down. But before we do that, I want to kind of go over uh, or introduce you to the people that developed these theories. This is not something that I came up with on my own, where Madsen came up with on his own. So there's some very key figures that helped us do that. Okay, so over the last 50 years, there's been much research done in the field of economics, and there's been some very key figures in that research and whose theories that we've now taken and put into practice uh, over at Madsen. A couple of them are Harry Markowitz and William F. Sharp, Sharp, excuse me, and Merton H. Miller. And these three in the 90s uh, shared the Nobel Prize for their pioneering work in the theory of financial economics. Their concepts help define modern portfolio theory, which we will discuss later. So modern portfolio theory won a Nobel Prize in economics. Hmm. So these theories have been tested and academically proven, and then now we're putting those into action. A couple other gentlemen who, who we do a lot of work with were whose ideas we've taken and put into practice are Rex Singfield and Roger Ibbotson. Uh, they're the co-authors of a great book called Stocks, Bonds, Bills, and Inflation. And their pioneering work forms the basis for avoiding some of the traps of traditional investment methods, which we talked about earlier, right? Some of the mm-hmm. myths of investment methods. And then finally, Dr. Eugene Pharma and Kenneth French, uh, they won a Nobel Prize um, for their work um, on the co-factor of the three-factor model and efficient market theory as well. So we have, two, we have four Nobel Prize winners um, whose research that we're using and academics that we're using to put this approach together. So when I said at the beginning that these things are academically and they are, they are proven and they're accepted financial theories, they're accepted at all levels 
of education. Yeah, a Nobel Prize. Yeah, that would make it pretty acceptable as far as I'm concerned. Right. So this is not something that we kind of came up with. It's not been tested or done any, you know, any research that's been done on. These things have been tested um, at the most highest levels where the most been through, put, so put through some of the, the highest rigor in terms of their mm-hmm. performance. So let's talk about these. Let's talk about efficient market hypothesis. So the first principle when we say efficient market hypothesis is that free markets work. What we're saying is that a free market works. In an efficient market, at any point in time, the actual price of a security will be a good estimate of its intrinsic value. So what we're just saying there is that the market is aptly priced at all times. The value or the price of a stock at any given time should give you a good estimate of its intrinsic value because no one's being forced to buy or sell that stock at any point in time. But to understand this better, let's consider the other way of doing this, or the opposite theory, which would be that markets are inefficient. Okay? So if we believe markets are inefficient, meaning that their markets are consistently mispriced goods or mispriced services, then we should be able to take advantage of those mispricings and pass value onto the investor by increasing returns and avoiding losses and investments. Has anyone ever been able to prove that they can do that? Don't look at me, buddy. Right. So if you believe that markets are inefficient, then you would want to market time, you would want to track record invest, and you'd want to stock pick. And you've proven that in the last episode, you discussed all those and basically debunked them. Correct. So we all believe that markets are efficient. Like we, that, that is, that is an, a proven academic belief. The only other way to believe is that they are inefficient and that we have or someone has the ability to manage those inefficiencies or to find those inefficiencies and make more money. And that's just not true. Only new and unknowable information events change prices in the future. The randomness of the market makes it impossible for an individual or entity to consistently predict market movements and capture additional returns unrelated to risk right? So if you want to capture larger returns, typically what you have to do is take larger risk, right? Right. Now that doesn't mean you take unnecessary risk, right? I mean, unnecessary risk, meaning we put all our money in one company, mm-hmm. right? Or one market segment, but even, even with the, the, the Matson method that we're looking at, we have risk involved in our portfolios. We, our portfolios don't always go up. Mm-hmm. What we're trying to do is be efficient in that risk and maximize the return based on the risk that we want to take. Understood. Okay. So markets work. Markets are efficient. The price of a stock is always the best intrinsic value of what it's worth. Otherwise, that price would change, right? And the prices do change based on what people think is going to happen. And it changed on things that we don't currently know. When there's new information given, then those prices change. The problem is, we don't know the new information until everybody else does. <laughs> right, right. So we've got to believe that markets work. That's a huge factor and thinking about there. So the second one is diversification works. So when we look at modern portfolio theory, what we're talking about is diversification and by using multiple different asset classes, right, and owning every company inside those asset classes, that gives us the greatest opportunity to eliminate risk or to, or to maximize our re- risk and return. And this is what Harry Markowitz won his Nobel Prize for. It's called Modern Portfolio Theory. He developed this um, a number, number of years ago. It took until uh, we could get the computers involved, right, to prove his theory correct. 
which is kind of funny. Uh, yeah. <laughs> his theory was around for a long time. We just didn't have the computing power to, to test it. And then once we were able to test it, it was then proven that by diversifying your portfolio over a number of asset classes, and then inside those asset classes, owning each individual company that's available, you are able to increase or maximize returns for the amount of risk that you're taking. And so he has what's called the Markowitz Efficient Frontier Model. And it's a very simple graph on the y-axis. I think that's the vertical axis. I'm, I hope I'm not wrong there. It can <laughs> go either way. So you're right. Go ahead. <laughs> you have your expected return. And on the x-axis, you have your risk measured in standard deviation. Mm -hmm. And what you want to do is if you're the farther out you go to the right, you want to consistently move up on the, on the y-axis. You should be expecting a larger return every time you move farther right and increase your risk. And what we find is certain investment vehicles, I'll just use the S&P for instance. The S&P has given a great overall return historically since it's been available uh, of about 10%. But it has very, very high volatility, almost 19 in a, as a standard deviation. And if you look at the Markowitz Efficient Frontier model, what it says is, if instead of putting all your money in the S&P and you used large, large value, small, small value, international, small, right? International, small value, that for the amount of risk that you're taking, you should be expecting almost a 2% higher return on an annualized basis. That could be considerable. That is a huge number, especially when you think about compounding that over 10, yeah. 15, 20 years. The other thing it tells us is if you're happy with the returns you're getting, if you have an all S&P based account, you could reduce your portfolio risk almost 50% and yeah. get the same return. So what does that mean in terms of numbers? Because when, when we talk about risk, percentages are tough for people to grasp, right? You tell someone they lose 20%, they're like, okay, I can handle that. You tell someone their million dollars goes down to 800,000, that, that kind of changes the conversation uh, yes, a little does. bit. <laughs> it does. So let's just use 2008. The S&P was down almost 39% in 2008. So if you had a, a million dollars, we'll just use a million dollars because it makes the math simple. We're down to $610,000. Mm -hmm. Now it's bounced back. Right, but that's a lot of volatility, man. He had, it took a that, that's a big gut punch to have to sit through. For the same level of return that we're looking that we're talking about here in the S and P in two thousand eight, you could have lost one hundred eighty thousand. Now, losing one hundred eighty thousand dollars isn't great. I'm not saying we want to go out and we want to lose one hundred eighty thousand dollars, but your million dollars goes down to what is that eight twenty, eight hundred twenty thousand. Who is more likely to stick with their portfolio and continue and wait for the rebound? And, and follow the investment strategy, the person that's down 390000 or the person that's down 180000 Well, I would think it's definitely the person who's lost less. Correct. So these things are important. Or if you're, if, if, if you're both only getting the same amount of return, would you rather have to lose 390000 at some point in the ride to get there? Or would you rather, you know, it, that's a huge difference. And what it says is, the S&P gets a great return, but there's a lot of unnecessary risk. There's way more efficient ways to do this. The whole goal in my mind with your portfolio is to be as efficient as possible, right? We're not trying to beat the market. We're trying to get the expected level of returns based on the amount of risk that we're willing to take. And the best way to do that is using market, which is efficient frontier model or modern portfolio theory. All right. Now, is this, uh, it sounds to me like this is very much the diversification, especially getting into a, a, a mutual fund. 
Um, mutual funds, yes. ETFs, yes. The problem was most mutual funds still don't own the entire asset class. Okay. So I can have a value, a large value mutual fund, but there might be 3,000 companies that make up US large value and I might only own 50 of them. Got it. Okay. So there's a wide range of opinions on diversification. Right. I think Jim Cramer may have said, and don't hold me to, to the name there, you know, that owning five to seven different companies is diversification. Some people think, you know, you're owning the SP 500, you own a bunch of different market segments, right? You have energy, you have healthcare, you mm-hmm. have technology, you know, that's diversification. We believe that you need to own every asset class and you need to own every company available in that asset class. So we have over 21,000 unique holdings in over 80 countries. Um, that's diversification to us. That's what the academics say. That's what the science says that you need to have if you want to have true diversification. But again, you know, that's something that, that each client is going to have to think about to themselves. Do I want to truly have diversification mm-hmm. or am I comfortable owning five or six different companies or um, owning just 500 US companies and not having any international, any small value, any large value in those different types of market segments? Yeah. It's about how, how broad based your diversification wants to be. Uh-huh. And to get the the maximum efficiency or to truly get market level rates of return, you need to own the whole market. Only a, There's only a few companies typically in each market segment that drive the majority of the growth. And so if you don't have true diversification, uh, then you could be missing out on those companies. You know, someone's going to choose Lowe's over Home Depot or Home Depot over Lowe's and, and think they have that market segment covered. Um, why don't you own both of them? What, in, what inside information do you have on either? Um, that makes you think that one's going to outpace the other one over mm. the next 5, 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. Good point. Good point. So the third point or the, the third thing that we like to use is the three-factor model. And it was developed again by Kenneth French and Dr. Eugene Farmer. We talked about them earlier. And what it says is that there's three factors that help determine value in a company where that we can try to use to get higher growth. So there's the market factor, the size factor, and the value factor. And this model takes a relationship between risk and return even further than the modern portfolio theory did because it makes it possible to calculate expected returns based on these three risk factors. So if you look at the three-factor model, it explains 97% of the variability of returns. So let's look at these three factors. First, the market factor. It tells us that inherently riskier to invest in the stock market than it is to invest in fixed income instruments, right? But we know that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And okay. we expect higher level of return for the market because of that risk. Right. And we should expect higher level of returns, right, in the market than we do from a T bill or from a CD because we are taking on risk, right? Exactly. And what it says is over long periods of time, the market has historically rewarded people that were willing to take risk. Doesn't mean it's going to reward you every day or every year. Over a period of time, it's going to reward you. Second, you have the size factor. It takes into consideration the size or market capitalization of a company in which you're investing. So when investing in the stock market, small companies have the potential for higher returns than large companies due to the fact that small companies are generally riskier than large companies. Right? So we'll just use the Lowe's uh, factor. Again, Lowe's is a large company. Your rate of return is expected to be less in a company like Lowe's than maybe a startup company um, in your hometown because 
it's less riskier. It's going to, it's much harder for Lowe's to fail than it would be for a local startup to fail. Mm-hmm. So the market historically has rewarded you for investing in equities, especially for investing in small companies, right? If you look at small value and small companies over time, since 1973, when data came out, they have produced the highest annualized rates of return, primarily because they have the highest risk factor, mm-hmm. right? So you're taking more risk. Now, that's only if you've owned the whole market, right? If you try to choose certain companies inside a small and small value, there's a chance the market goes up and you go down. But that's the risk you're taking. That is. But that's a separate risk. That's stock picking inside of it, right? So if you own all of small value, then you'll get the, the rates of return of that whole index. If you say, I'm going to own small value, and then you go choose three or four companies in small value, well, the asset class can go up and your, and yours, your account could go down right. because you chose the wrong ones. So right. again, you want to own the whole marketplace if you want to level market level returns. So- Finally, the third, it's called the value factor. It refers to the extra risk exposure or the extra risk premium of investing in high book-to-market or value stocks. So what does high book-to-market mean? Well, it simply means companies that have a lower market price than than companies relative to their size. So these type of companies are usually experiencing some kind of financial distress, and usually their earnings are down. As a result, they are riskier and offer investors the potential for a higher return. Again, if we have two companies about the same size and one of them's under a little bit of financial distress and one of them is not, I'm going to expect a higher level return if I invest in the one under distress, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So it's the same thing. So by doing that, by investing in small and small value, which is what we're talking here in large and large value, right? We're able to get greater diversification, own more companies, and the value factor has come into play and we should expect a higher level return in that asset class. And historically going back for all the data on American stocks, that's goes all the way back to 1927, large value, which is what we're talking about here, companies under distress have outperformed the S&P by about 1.6% on an annualized rate of return basis. Hmm. Now they have a higher standard deviation, right? So there is more risk involved in that. Your account would would have fluctuated more for that growth. But it is, I mean, that's a 10%, almost a 12, 13, 15% higher rate of return, right? I mean, from 10 to 11.8, 1.6, it's a 16% higher rate of return that you're getting for that risk. And so if we factor those in, the market factor, the size factor, and the value factor, those three variables, we can kind of understand what our expected rate of return is based on our risk, which is really all investors are looking for. Yes, true. Right. All they want to do is get an idea, Keith, or, or whoever they're working with, not, not short-term. And I mean, we never give short-term expected rates of return, but your money and equity should have a long-term approach to it anyways, right? This isn't, shouldn't be money um, that you're expecting to use in the next year, two years, typically. So, you know, we're looking 10, 15, 20 years out. Give me an idea. What's my expected rate of return based on how much risk I'm willing to take? What is my worst case scenario historically based on owning the, you know, based on market history. And the only way you can give accurate information to a client that's asking you that is if you own the whole market. Mm-hmm. Anything else is a guess. Uh, you, you cannot give them accurate expected rates of return or accurate risk factors or worst case scenarios if you're then choosing certain companies inside of those, those market segments. Absolutely. Right, right. So, I mean, it, 
if a company you're working with is trying to give you, here's our expected rate of return, but they don't own the whole market, that's, they're just guessing. There's no academics behind that. And, and, and if anything, their track record investing, which we talked about last time, right. well, here's our track record. Well, track record investing has been proven not to work because we can always find the right track record. You want a 10-year number? I can go find my best 10-year performing mm-hmm. mutual fund. You want a five-year number? Let me go find my best five-year performing mutual fund. You want a 20-year number? We'll go track record our best 20-year. Whatever the client asks for, I'll go find the best one, right? Right. That's not how it works, right? That's not how it works moving forward. So again, academic approach, efficient market hypothesis plus modern portfolio theory plus the three-factor model equals the math and me- the maths and method. And we believe free markets work if you take a long-term approach you own the actual market and you understand that there's ups and downs, right? And you manage your risk up front. You don't manage risk once the market drops. You manage your risk up front. Mm-hmm. Then you could expect to get market level rates of return and have an extremely efficient portfolio and not have to worry about the day-to-day market movements that are random and unpredictable. All right, Keith, how can people reach you to talk about this more in depth? It makes it, it's really a compelling story. This is the way that you work. This is the way they may want to work. How can they reach you? Yeah, so they can go online. Uh, they can find us at steadfastws.com. They can request an appointment there. Uh, they can email me directly, keith at steadfastws.com, or they can give us a call at 832-506-9034. Uh, they can send us their statement. We will run an MRI, basically a diagnosis of what they own, We'll be able to look to see what market segments they own, right? We'll be able to run the mm-hmm. efficient market hypothesis on there, tell them what their expected rate of return is with their current portfolio, how much risk they have in it, and determine the efficiency of it. And, and then talk about any changes that we think maybe need to be made, or maybe it's, it's, it's working exactly how they want. And then they'll have the confidence that they're doing this correctly. Either way, they're going to come out ahead. Lots of really solid information here, Keith. Thank, thank you so much. Keith Beggs of Steadfast Wealth Strategies and the host of My Two Cents. Subscribe and follow to get the latest podcast. And of course, let others know by sharing. Thank you for listening to My Two Cents with Keith Beggs. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. All securities discussed are offered and provided through Steadfast Financial Planning, LLC. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Steadfast Wealth Strategies. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor and or qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. This podcast is not intended to provide specific investment, financial planning, tax, or legal advice. It is intended for educational purposes only. Please consult your tax advisor, financial advisor, or legal professional for specific advice on your specific situation.